Welcome. This week we are looking at the third Sabbath school lesson in the quarterly entitled Psalms. This week's lesson, dated January 13 to 19, is entitled The Lord Reigns. Now that sounds good, right? That's what all Christians say. God is sovereign. He reigns over the universe. He reigns over the world. He reigns over reality. It sounds right on the surface, but something doesn't hold together when you read through this lesson. Something sounds like word salad from day to day as I read the lessons. So I'm going to begin with three identified problems that help us to get below the surface to see what this lesson is really saying, what this lesson is really establishing, and then to see how it's misusing words to keep alive its worldview. So those three problems that I've identified this week are these. Number one, while trying to say God is sovereign, this lesson uses the creation to establish God's rule. It presents God as within his creation instead of separate from it. Two, this lesson relies on a great controversy worldview to present God's roles in reality. And three, this lesson misuses the biblical covenants to establish the centrality of the law. Well, that's probably no surprise to most of us. The clearest disclosure of the author's intention is found this week in the teacher's comments. Interestingly, the lesson itself is a little bit vague. It suggests the things that we're going to talk about, but it's the teacher's comments that came right out and gave the premises which are supposed to be taught in the Sabbath school classes to establish the worldview. Even though the title of the lesson is God Reigns, the words in this lesson don't mean what they normally mean when we use these words. Within Adventism, God's reign is limited. And I think all of us who were Adventists know that. We grew up believing that God gave us all free will to choose him, to please him, to seek him. And if we didn't want to, he would be a gentleman and not go where he was not invited to go. And he would allow us not to choose him. Thus, God would limit his sovereign power. We were taught that God's election, although clearly taught in Ephesians and in Romans 8, was really not what the Bible clearly says it is. It's something different, because if God really did elect, then that would be determinative, and we wouldn't have free will. So all of this background worldview is implied while this lesson is being taught, and it's being covered over with the use of the words, God reigns. This refusal to embrace the biblical teaching of God's sovereignty is actually revealed, almost inadvertently, in the opening comments of the teacher's comments. And we're going to go right there and read them. There are five points that the teacher's comments make. And notice that the average Sabbath school lesson quarterly that the average member receives doesn't contain these comments. But it is there in the teacher's quarterly. And here's how the week's instructions for the teachers begin. Quote, This week, we shall examine five aspects of God's sovereignty in the Psalter. We will see that the Psalms affirm the following. Number one, the foundation of God's sovereignty is based in the creation. 
The Lord is the maker of the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1, and humanity, Genesis 1-26. 2. On the basis of this Bible truth, the various psalmists proclaim that Yahweh is the ruler over all the world and the nations. Number 3. The sovereignty of the Lord is inseparably intertwined in his work as judge. Number four, as judge, God intercedes for the people because of his covenant with them. And number five, he is faithful to the rules of this treaty because the law of his covenant is the foundation of his kingdom. As we shall see, these five topics are closely intertwined. End quote. Well, the first statement of these five really reveals the inside-out view of the Sabbath school lesson's view of God's sovereignty and of God's rule. Just right up front, God's sovereignty is not founded in creation. Now, to be sure, Psalm 19, Romans 1, 18 to 20, tell us that What can be known of God is revealed through what has been made, but a revelation of God's reign and his sovereignty is not the same as a foundation of his reign and sovereignty. Think about it. This is attributing what God has made to be the foundation of God himself. No, it's the opposite of what this lesson says. God is the foundation of creation. Creation exists because God. We can't even explain fully who or what God is, but we know he is what some people call the uncaused cause. Creation is not the foundation of God's sovereignty. It is the result of God's sovereignty. Now, I find it interesting that this view is not just a perchance misspeaking. This is not just an accidental misuse of English. Think about this. When Adventism talks about God's law, for example, and teaches the Sabbath, what are two of the proof texts that they most love to go to? Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, to be sure, those words come straight out of the Gospels. They're in the Bible. But Adventism misapplies them, and they teach them upside down. They teach them in a way that meshes perfectly with saying God's sovereignty is founded in creation. Think of it this way. As an Adventist, when you heard the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, and Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, tell me that you didn't think of it this way. The Sabbath is an eternal, majestic, holy day. God made this eternal Sabbath for our good, a little bit like God is for our good. In fact, we were taught, Ellen White affirms, that God himself keeps the Sabbath. In fact, our trip to heaven is described in Ellen White's early works as being a six-day trip and then a seventh day where we keep the Sabbath with Jesus on the way to heaven. We are told that the Sabbath is eternal, that we will honor it with God in the new heavens and the new earth. These things are not taught in the Bible. But do you see that this is the same inside out and upside down view that this particular view of God's rule and reign has 
in this quarterly, we were taught that the Sabbath was eternal and holy, and we are subject to it, that God himself is subject to this thing. How much of a lie is that? God is not subject to his own creation. God made his creation. And when Jesus said Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, he didn't mean that he is in charge of honoring this eternal holy day, much like King Charles is responsible for managing England. That's not the sense in which Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. No, he is Lord of the Sabbath because he is over the Sabbath. He is sovereign, eternal, almighty God. The Sabbath was a, was a made day that was first given in the book of Exodus. And Galatians 3 tells us that it was made temporarily until the seed would come. This is not an eternal holy entity over which God manages it and under which he is subject. We are not subject to the Sabbath. God is subject over the Sabbath. And when we are in him, his position as Lord of the Sabbath brings us along with him and we find our Sabbath rest in him. So think about that when you think about God's reign is founded in creation. That's the same upside down model that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath has in an Adventist mind. No, Jesus's reign is not founded in creation. Rather, creation is a window through which we see the sovereign Lord's power. The next thing we need to look at is the way this lesson assumes the great controversy worldview. Now, this whole principle of their saying that God's reign is founded in creation is a spinoff of their great controversy worldview. Now, on page 37 of the daily lesson, we have a quote that reveals their dependence on the great controversy. And the interesting thing is, this quote I'm about to read was not part of the daily teaching. It was listed in the four discussion questions at the end of Friday's lesson. Here is question number one. It is asked of the people who are reading the quarterly, and it is assuming that every reader will assume that the great controversy is a thing that is real. Here's the question. Why is understanding the reality and prevalence of the great controversy crucial in helping us understand that despite God's ultimate rulership and sovereignty, there is still much turmoil and suffering in the world? Why is the great controversy motif so helpful to us? End quote. Well, the great controversy worldview is built on the prehistory story that we all learned. The prehistory story that says before there was an earth, before there was a solar system, there was God in heaven with all the angels, and there was Lucifer. And in that prehistory heaven, God supposedly appointed Jesus to be his son. In fact, Ellen White uses the words, he exalted Jesus to the position of his son. This, of course, triggered jealousy in Lucifer, who was a chief angel, who believed that honor was better served if it had gone to him. Now, Ellen White never actually says 
Jesus was an angel just like Lucifer, but her description of this entire scenario suggests that Jesus and Lucifer were on an equal playing field, that God the Father came along and said, I pick you, Jesus, you're going to be my son. The rest of you just have to deal with it and listen to my son. Lucifer wasn't going to deal. According to the great controversy model, he became jealous. He enraged a third of the angels of heaven and embroiled them in a war in heaven and actually succeeded in creating doubt in the entire universe about God's character. Was God really fair? Was he fair to exalt Jesus? More than that, was he really fair in giving his law, his eternal Ten Commandment law that everyone in heaven and on earth was to obey. Why, that was a law no one could keep. And Lucifer became Satan and has proceeded throughout the history of time to tempt humanity and make them rebel against God. That is the prehistory story that established the view of the great controversy. This is an entirely invented story. It bears far more resemblance to Mormon theology than it does to anything in the Bible. In fact, I find it quite funny, and many of you have heard her say it, that my co-host for the former Adventist podcast, Nikki Stevenson, said that when she started studying Adventism, one of the first things she wanted to know was, where in the Bible is that prehistory story? And she asked her mother-in-law, a pastor's wife, where is that story? Can you show me in the Bible where it is? And her mother-in-law said, I'm sorry, Nikki, it's not in the Bible. So that is an invented story that has prepared a worldview through which Adventism views everything the Bible says. That great controversy worldview is being assumed even in this lesson, which is attempting to teach about God's reign and his, quotes, sovereignty. But as we've seen, it's not the sovereignty of Scripture. There's another thing about Ellen White's prehistory great controversy worldview. It's not only the story of how Lucifer became jealous, impugned God's character, and became Satan. She built that entire story on a false god. Her god is not the triune god of Scripture. Her god is three beings, not just one. Her god is not one. God expressed in three persons, all of whom share substance. No, the Adventist God is Ellen White's heavenly trio, her three worthies of heaven. She has three beings, and Adventism teaches that this three-being God is like a winning team. In fact, the Seventh-day Adventist's homepage online calls Jesus God and the Holy Spirit, a winning team. It's like a winning team. No, that's not the God of Scripture. Jesus affirmed the Shema of Deuteronomy 5. Our God is one. That means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share substance. Every attribute of God is equally in all three persons of the Trinity. Now, as Adventists, we were taught they share purpose, they share a name, they are kind of like the God family, they share a will, they share power, but we were not taught they share substance. 
And their book, The Seventh-day Adventists Believe, do not teach that the three persons share substance, nor does any other document of the Seventh-day Adventist organization. And if you ask an Adventist theologian, most of them waffle and kind of use word salad as well, because the Adventist Godhead is not the Trinity of Scripture. Here's one very clear way you can understand that they do not share substance. I believe most Adventists either explicitly or implicitly learned that Jesus gave up his omnipresence when he took a body. I was overtly taught that idea, wasn't a fact, when I was in school, as a junior high kid, I believe. But most Adventists believe that Jesus gave up his omnipresence. In fact, Adventism teaches, Ellen White teaches, the Seventh-day Adventists believe, teaches that the Holy Spirit had to come when Jesus went back to heaven after his resurrection because Jesus can no longer be everywhere at once because he has a body. Do you see that that says Jesus is not God? God, Jesus told us in John 4, 24, to the woman at the well, and just by the way, isn't it amazing that God in the person of the Son revealed this amazing fact about the nature of God to a Samaritan woman in first century AD? He said, God is spirit. Now that's not what historic Adventism taught. James White overtly believed that God the Father had a body and wrote a pamphlet called The Personality of God about this idea. And Ellen White's ideas and writings about God derived from that. She never denied, really, she never denied that God the Father also has a body. That's not the God of Scripture. Jesus is fully God. The fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him, Colossians 2.9. That means every attribute of God was in the Lord Jesus always, even in the tomb and in the womb. So the great controversy worldview twists everything that Adventism says about the Bible because it assumes a false God, a false Jesus, a Jesus who is not fully God, a Jesus who could have sinned, who could have failed. The God of Scripture sent his Son, who was God, in some mystery which is not explained to us as God, he could not sin. He had nothing in him which was attracted to sin, although he was tempted beyond anything we are tempted. But he was born spiritually alive, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he was never not fully God as well as fully man. Finally, we're going to address this lesson's use of the biblical covenants. Now, again, it doesn't go into detail, but it does say just enough to cause confusion and to reveal that Adventism believes and teaches that there's really only one covenant. Now, if you actually look at scripture, it becomes obvious that scripture teaches us about more than one covenant. There is the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 15, where God promises Abraham seed, land, and blessing, and it is an unconditional covenant. He promised he would do this for Abraham and his seed and his offspring. 
In Exodus, we find the second biblically named covenant. It's the covenant God made with Israel through the mediator Moses on the mountain of Sinai. This was a conditional covenant. This was a covenant where both the men and the women of Israel and God made promises to each other. And these were the terms. God would bless Israel for its obedience. If they apostatized, God would punish them. And Israel said, all that you have said, we will do. Well, how well did that work? No human promise can actually end up being kept because we're sinful by nature. We're born dead in sin, and our promises, as well-meaning as they are, cannot be kept. God knew that. That Mosaic Covenant was, as we read in Galatians and Romans, for the purpose of, well, a couple of things, actually. The law was given to point out sin and to increase sin. As Israel became aware of what God's standards for righteous behavior were, it became more and more clear to them they couldn't do it. That was God's intention. He also provided the shadows of sacrifices so that Israel would understand that it would require a blood sacrifice to cleanse them from sin. But the animals that he gave them to sacrifice could not cleanse their human sin. And that is why the entire Mosaic Covenant was pointing forward, as Galatians 3 says, to the seed who was to come. And that seed is Jesus. When Jesus came, on the night before he was betrayed and hung on the cross, he celebrated the Passover one last time with his disciples, and he transformed the Passover into what we now know as the Lord's Supper. And Jesus said, as he held up the cup, drink this, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he asked them to eat the Passover bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Do you see what he did? He transformed the entire shadow of the law, of the heart of the sacrificial system, and he brought it forward and transformed it into a remembrance for us of his own atonement for our sin. The Lord Jesus established an unconditional covenant that night. And when he went to the cross and hung there and took the wrath of God as he hung between heaven and earth, and the sun went out, and it was dark, and there was an earthquake, he suffered the wrath of God for our sin. That's what Jesus did. He didn't come to show us how to keep the law. He came to fulfill the law, to fulfill its death sentence, to show us that he fully propitiated for the sin of which those animals were only shadows. He himself is our substitute. And when we recognize that we are born unlike Jesus, fully sinful and dead in sin, as it tells us in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And we bring our hopeless sinfulness, our spiritual death, our sins that we have committed because we are sinners. When we bring those to the Lord Jesus who hung on that cross, who took God's wrath, who was buried and who was raised on the third day because his sacrifice was sufficient, when we trust him and believe that he did that and fully paid for us, 
We pass at that moment from death to life, as Jesus himself said in John 4, 25. We can know we are saved. We are no longer dead in sin when we trust Jesus. When we trust Jesus, we understand in a brand new way that God is sovereign. We understand what it means that he reigns. He planned our rescue. He planned to take in himself the penalty for our sins. Adventism and these Sabbath school lessons deflect the truth and cause the reader to be confused, to glaze over, and to say, oh no, God would never deprive us of our free will, of our freedom not to choose him. No, God is sovereign, and when he shows us who he is, he gives us the faith to believe. Go read Ephesians 2, 1-10. to What that tells us is so different from what this Sabbath school lesson says, you will never be able to see God's sovereignty and God's reign in the same way. In fact, Ephesians 1 and 2 will rock your world. Trust him today if you haven't. He is Lord, and there is no other.